Hey, and welcome to the show today. You're listening to SinSensor.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. And we have another really great show for you today. This podcast is made by SinSensor.com, the leading relationship institute for relationship skills and courses based on science made practical. To get the one-hour free webinar that will give you the key skills to get a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, just go to SinSensor.com and sign up. The link is in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and leave a review. It really helps me keep the positive energy going to make more podcasts. Welcome to the podcast today. We got Mark Sharp on the show and I look forward to talking to Mark about intimacy and relationships. Mark, I thought, would you be able to just give a little bit of background to the listeners out there about you know what, what you're working with and, and what got you into that in the first place? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to, and and thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast today. I've been uh, I've been looking forward to that. Um, I'm a psychologist. I'm in the in the uh, Chicago area in the United States, um, and I have been in private practice here for 14 years. I guess I started my practice in 2006. Before that, I'd worked in a community mental health center. Um, so I've had a lot of experience, actually. In, before I started my private practice, I was running the child and adolescent treatment team at a community mental health center, and I've always had a real kind of focus when I work with children on working with families. And um, as I switched to private practice, it morphed over a few years until most of what I do now is is working with couples and working with people around kind of more intimate um, primary intimate relationships, though I still do some work with um, with families and you know one of the things that couples have to deal with is figuring out how to parent together so there's still a lot of that that's going on as well yeah thank you for, for so, telling us about yeah. that mark and also we'll get into a bit about the parenting later in the podcast but i think i'm really happy that you mentioned that because i think often when we try to do relationship therapy or counseling whatever we call it it's very focused just on the couple and i like you know, that you bring in the idea of parenting because really as a family, it's a unit and every right. piece of that unit also impact the adult relationship and their dynamics. So it's hard to just work with one without integrating the others. But where I really want to start with today is is talking about part of the glue that holds relationships together, at least in, right. in modern day, which obviously is intimacy and the emotional connection. Could you talk a bit about what that is and, and why it's important to have in a relationship? Well, yeah, I mean, you're, I think the word that you use there is the perfect one. It's the glue, right? It's the glue that actually keeps the, um, the structure of the relationship together is the emotional intimacy. And it's really about that sense of connection. I mean, you think about it, we're, we are, we are, um, kind of wired for that. There's a whole, um, idea about attachment and, how that develops through childhood and whatnot. And we really look to be very connected and in, in to someone else. And for most of us, that the primary place that takes place is in our primary intimate relationship, our spouse or partner. Um, and for the most part, people want that and it's something that they need. The person who really is very comfortable being alone is pretty rare in our society. So what is that? It it it, it really is about um a sense of safety and a sense of shared emotional um, experience. 
um, a sense that um, we really have something in common that goes together. And it, it's interesting. I mean, this may be a little off topic, but one of the things that I find um, with a lot of couples is when they come in and start talking about intimacy, more often than not, they're talking about sex, right? They say we have an intimacy problem. Usually the first question I have is, so does that, do you mean you have a sex problem? And I'm not sure about that, what, what that comes from. I think some of it is because people are uncomfortable talking directly about sex. And so they use the word intimacy. And the reality is that a good sexual connection in a relationship really does enhance intimacy. And it's one of the tools that keeps people connected emotionally or can keep people connected emotionally. But intimacy itself is much than that. It's about um, person you look to when you when you um, need some emotional support. It's about um, feeling like you're not alone going forward into your life. So it's 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 really about um, that, but it's it's hard. We don't have great wor- words for it. And um, probably the key thing to creating that and sustaining that in a couple is um, is being emotional to each other. That means being able to share emotional experience in a way that makes you feel vulnerable, but also that um, you have someone that you feel like is really sharing the positive experience with you. Yeah, that's thank you for clarifying. And I guess that's also where often we have some issues in our cultures, because I think especially a lot of men and we we fall over on that category haven't really learned the emotional language right because we were very stigmatized that we showed or expressed more softer emotions growing up so we kind of inhibited that and often with our friends that's not the way boys they speak to each other while women have much more practice i guess in that language so therefore it's often easier for them and and i hear often the complaint from a lot of women that they don't feel their man is emotionally available or like you said share which makes it hard to then feel that intimacy right and then it becomes more functional what are some ways maybe that i guess it applies both to men and women that how we can how we can build more that intimacy and maybe also specific what can what can men do to try and yeah tap into to those parts of themselves that maybe they have neglected for a long time right well it it, i mean i think i I think a piece of it is is you know you talked about it there's this um part of the acculturation of men in at least in our society that emotion is is um is associated with those soft things right with uh sadness and emotional pain and crying and and that man manly manly men don't do that um you know you don't experience those things or you're not impacted by those things um and and one thing I think is just to address that um, that myth. There's a um, um, this this may go off, and it it's, it's probably not a great example because it's a woman doing it. But but uh, it, there's a story I tell sometimes, right? You know, the, the the so let me let me back up a minute. So the 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 statement of strength um, when you talk about male socialization is I'm not impacted by those soft emotions and I don't, um, I don't express them. And the interesting thing is lots of women sort of buy into that as well. There's the, um, I don't 
if you if you if you seem to not be affected by things that hurt people or make people sad, that makes you strong emotionally. Um, and that's that's kind of a myth, I think. Um, most people have probably talked to someone about someone there's there's there uh, something they're sad about, or if you've ever gone to a funeral and someone starts to talk and then they start to cry and they say, "I can't go on," because there's this myth that you know if you're crying, there's something wrong. But the reality is, people can cry and talk at the same time, right? So there was a story here and. It still strikes me. It was probably 20, 25 years ago, and I've actually searched online to see if I can find video or something of it, and I can't anymore. But there was a young, a young woman, um, girl, actually. She was, I think, 12 years old and had gotten her private pilot's license. She couldn't fly by herself. I'm not sure how old you are, Thomas. You might, you might remember this story, but I'm, it's probably a thing about how old I am. And she was trying to set a record to be the youngest person who had flown around the world. And she actually crashed and died. She had to, to, um, to uh, fly with an instructor. And there was an interview on, the te- on television with her mother. And the interviewer said to her, and this is the piece, said, it must be very difficult for you to talk about your daughter. And she says, no, it's not difficult at all. I love talking about my daughter. I was very, very proud of my daughter. I'm going to cry when I talk about my daughter, but it's not difficult for me to talk about her at all. And I'm like, that is a really different attitude towards emotion. It's like emotion is there and it it just is. And you share it and there's nothing you really have to avoid or you have to have to um try and say, I can't express this. Um, I'm not sure. Am I getting too far off track here? No, I think, no, absolutely. I think it makes so much sense. And also that emotions just need to run their cycle. And and right. I guess, you know, the fact is we don't connect to each other through sharing how perfect we are. And like you said, the man no. who has it all together and I'm not impacted. Um, the fact is we, we feel connected when we do share these softer emotions, right? And we can see that right. size when we can see the imperfections in each other because that's where we feel human and we can all resonate with that. So actually it can be quite disconnecting to be with somebody who constantly just, you know, you just see they have it all together. And I guess it's just yeah. we learn, like you said, a part of socialization, that's how we have to come across, but it's just really right. detrimental to the intimacy, it's, right, and connection. Doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work well. I mean, yeah, being, sharing vulnerability is one of the best ways to create um, more connection and more intimacy. So you, you've probably also heard people say, well, I need to be strong for them, right? Talking about their spouse or people really do this for their kids, right? And what they mean is I need to, what they normally mean is I need to show that I'm not affected by this horrible thing that's happened. So let's say in a family, grandparents have died. Well, I need to be, my, the kids were really close to their grandparents, so I need to be strong for them. So I can't show them how much this impacts me. And that's a model of emotional support that many people have. And I, I, I kind of talk about it, um, the, 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 the metaphor, the image that I use that I think is more useful is, you know, that loss or that sadness, whatever it is, has a certain amount of weight. And when you share it with someone and you know that someone else is feeling the same thing that you are, it means that the two of you are sharing that weight so it doesn't feel as heavy by itself anymore. And um, that's the kind of metaphor that I use to try and help people 
kind of open up in terms of of sharing their sadness and sharing their vulnerability with each other. Yeah, and I also, you know, I think a lot of it has to do. We have this enormous fear um, of, of these emotions because often we haven't learned to deal with them, and therefore they can feel right. very overwhelming. Like you said, whether it's sadness, fear, whatever it is, and I think it's such a big gift. I, I used to do social and emotional learning programs for kids, and there's no bigger gift than showing our kids how they can actually process their emotions and how all emotions, if we just let them run their course, are okay. It's not that big a deal. Like you said, whether we need to cry whether we need to get angry and punch the pillow, they're just emotions. And once right. we do that, then the fear itself of these emotions go away, right? And I just think it's such a big gift to show our kids that rather than to teach them to suppress it and, and push it down. Absolutely. I mean, the it's, it is oftentimes... Um, the the attempts to try and not experience or not express the emotion that creates more problems for people than it is the emotion yeah. themselves. The emotions are pretty natural. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, so I want to get into also talking a bit about, you know, the adult parts of a relationship. And you mentioned before, too, yeah. it's an important thing that people often come in and, and start saying, oh, it's an intimate thing when it's really a, a sex issue. And you mentioned briefly that it's part of the Glue, could you talk a bit more about why sex is so important for a relationship and why it's something that we should actually prioritize as well? Well, it, it, because sex sex really creates an emotional um, connection between people. And it, and it happens at a lot of levels, I think. I mean, there are hormonal changes that happen when you have an orgasm that kind of contribute to... Um, to, to feeling connected, right? So, I mean, oxytocin gets it, um, excreted in our hormonal system when we when we have an orgasm, and that that um, it's been called the the cuddle hormone, I think that is right. And so, it th- hormonally, we get set up to feel closer to people when we have a sexual relationship with them, and it's just also a um, um, I mean, you know, it's a pleasurable experience. So, sharing something pleasurable, well. Hopefully, it's a pleasurable experience. Sometimes things that happen within it to make it not a pleasurable experience are one of the barriers to good sex. But you want to make it kind of something that you you share together, and so that creates more connection. And it is also um, it is also a place where it's really easy to feel vulnerable. You know, I mean, you're exposed. Um, I believe that the French term for orgasm is le petit mort, right? Which is, forgive my accent, but the, the, the little death, right? Because you're, you're really vulnerable, both because you're usually naked and it just feels like a vulnerable place. So it is also a place, it's this really positive thing where you're sharing vulnerability with someone. And um, there's all sorts of evidence out there that a good sexual connection in a relationship really helps with um, the emotional connection as well and with that intimacy. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point because, as, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's part of the attachment bond sex because we release oxytocin. Right. And actually, I read a really interesting experiment, which I think they... Um, I can't remember what animals it was, but basically they they tried to induce more um, oxytocin. Um, And basically, 
uh, what they realized was that when they did that, then they started attaching and they became loyal to their partner. And what then happened when they started putting in something that blocked the oxytocin was the opposite, that they realized that they would start straying and they would go off and, and be with different partners. So actually they also found that the level of oxytocin has something to do with whether we have monogamous behavior or not. So it was quite, right. quite an interesting experiment. That um, makes sense to me. I'm not aware of that, but that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so, and so it is part of that attachment cue as well, the sex. And I think you mentioned as well that, you know, sometimes sex is not good, sometimes it is. Could you talk a bit about what are some of those barriers that come up for, for people to have good sex in a relationship? Like, what are some of those blocks? Well, um, so the the biggest block, that that I run into for, for yeah I, yeah um, one of the big blocks that I run into with people is is people just get ang's anxious about sex and there's a lot of reasons for that I mean um, sex is one of those things that we get all kinds of of um, crazy messages about as well right so there are a lot of kind of religious limitations on sex sometimes that people get um, beaten into them like it's a horrible thing that you're not supposed to do until you get married and then it's a wonderful thing and it suddenly changes and so sometimes people carry guilt because they've been made to hear that there's also i mean on the opposite end of that um the way sex is portrayed in the media is that it is, you know, it's always wonderful and glorious. And the reality is that when you develop a sexual relationship with someone, it, it isn't always wonderful and glorious when you start out. You kind of need to learn each other and what each other's response patterns are and how to do that. And so there's, there's, um, there's some skill that you can develop in being a better sexual partner. But it's one of those places where the myth is, well, you find the right person and then it just fits and it's wonderful. So there's all this kind of mythology about that. Um, but then there's also what is sex, right? And people have this image of what it's supposed to look like. And so then they try to... Um, make sex happen for them or act it out in, in a way that fits with that image. And so, um, and for many people that has to do with intercourse and it has to happen in a particular way. And but, so I'll bet, to start that off, I'll say a sexual relationship for two people is going to work best if they just say it's about their mutual pleasure right? Now, there's a reproductive aspect of that. We can get to that in a little bit too. And Actually, when that becomes too much of a focus, that can really mess with a sex life. But so let me so let me give you um, something that I deal with with a lot of couples is that they don't feel like they've had sex unless they've had intercourse, and then there's this demand command performance. It becomes about performing and doing the right thing. That can create anxiety and in some cases can create other problems as well. I was working with a couple a few years ago where um, the woman um, experienced intercourse as very painful for the most part. 
but she had this belief system that in order for them to actually have sex, they had to have intercourse. And so she was kind of demanding that her partner have intercourse with her, and he didn't want to do that because he knew that it hurt her, and they just had all sorts of trouble. If you could just relax and focus on the pleasure piece of it, there's a lot that can go into sex that doesn't involve intercourse. There's all sorts of other ways to stimulate each other and so on. So um, that's one of the things. Um, there's another thing that I see people doing, and it's that they kind of um, set sex apart as this very separate thing that's got its its own place, and they're not. There's not any. Um, they don't. They don't allow for sensuality outside of the boundaries of what they call sex, right? And so they're, in that case, they kind of sometimes have to have to turn on the sensuality, the connection, the, the, the attraction to each other in a physical way whenever they get ready for sex. And moving in and out of that room isn't always, isn't always um, an easy thing to do. There's a guy, um, speaking of books, let me see. Um, Oh man, I'm blocking on his name. I'll try and remember. But he he he's he's a, was a sex therapist. Wrote a book called Love Worth Making, and he he talks about this concept that he calls simmering, right? Which is you can think about sex. You can do things that um, indicate your attraction for each other and that are erotic outside of the time when you're actually going to have sex. So you know, have a passionate kiss when you say goodbye in the morning even though you know that might turn you on a little bit and there's not going to be anything you do, you can do about that at the moment that's fine that keeps the kind of the juices flowing and so um that's one of the things i i've, I've really taken that idea of simmering on as well um maybe i've said enough for a moment i'll pause and make yeah, sure i'm making I, sense you are and i like what you said was simmering because i think there's often this idea especially for men that you know, sex begin when they are turned on, when they're in the bedroom. Right. And, and like you said, it's so important to realize that sexual response, and more so for women and for men, but for all of us to some extent, have also to do with the context that we're in, right? How stressful was Absolutely. that day? And like you said, has that energy been built up before? Um, and right. therefore, I think you're so right. And it's about understanding that, you know, there's this whole spectrum also building up anticipation to what's going to happen which really enhance the response rather than just presuming because we often as men have spontaneous desire that suddenly we feel desire that they have the same that they don't necessarily have so it's a good point right. you bring in and I also like what you said about focus on sensation you mentioned that in the beginning because we are so focused yeah. in our culture on orgasm that often it puts so much pressure and I know a lot of women who mention to me and say oh I feel so much pressure and that in itself right. become a block, right? Because now they start being concerned and anxious about it in, right. instead of just focusing, like you said, on mutual pleasure and making that the focus, that the exploration. Um, yeah, and again, I think then it can also become more playful without the stress of, of worrying about whether you're going to get to this goal. Playful is a really good word to apply to it, you know? I mean, because when you're playful together, um, it... Uh, I mean, what's play really about? It's about doing things kind of together without a whole lot of structure to create mutual joy. And I mean, what's wrong with that, you know? Um, and sometimes sex becomes very serious for people. Like, 
so I, I, I made allusion to the, the reproductive part of sex, right? And I have known more than one couple where um, their attempt to have a child and having problems with conception has totally destroyed their sex life because all of a sudden it becomes very utilitarian. Hey, it's the right time. We got to have sex. And, and then it's also usually starts to be associated with those feelings of um, we're, we're failing at this thing that we really want to do. And that can, that can be a, a very hard thing on a sex life. And for those couples, sometimes it's useful to maybe take it out of the intercourse sex piece, but to create some kind of a sensual way to physically connect with each other to kind of keep that going. Yeah, would you also be able to talk a bit about this idea that sex has to be spontaneous? Again, I think that's very much an idea we have in our culture, isn't it? That it yes. should just happen. And and again, it's obviously not true, but it would be interesting to just yeah hear your opinion on that. Well, this that is true. Yeah, a lot of people say, um, you know, yeah, good sex is spontaneous. But the reality is, if you're talking about a family, um, you're talking about people who get busy and there, it, it, it is very difficult for sex to be spontaneous. And um, so planning, it, you know, planning sex, making a sex date, if you, say, if you want to say it that way, can also kind of contribute to that whole simmering thing right? The anticipation of it can help with the arousal. You know, hey, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to our date tonight. Um, and to know that it's coming, think about it, share with each other things like that can start to build some of the, um, can start to simmer some of that sexual energy outside of that. Now, here's what's interesting. I mean, if you, if you think about the spontaneous if you think about the spontaneous um, idea, right? Well, that's how people say that they learned about sex, that, that when they started becoming sexual, sex was spontaneous and in their younger years. And, um, and when you think about how, where most people were when they became sexually active for the first time, um, they're usually in a... Um, they're dating someone or they're doing something where they're going to get together and they're going to have sex. And they say it's spontaneous, but the reality is they have the expectation that whenever they get together, they're going to have sex. That's not spontaneous. There's a lot of anticipation going on there. There's a lot of simmering going on before they come together. That's kind of the way things oftentimes happen early on in relationships, right? There's a lot of sex. We, we really are hot. We're going to get together when we see each other. It's not spontaneous. It's spontaneous that you don't plan and talk about it. But um, oftentimes, both people have that expectation coming together. So I think the the whole idea of of um, putting some structure around it can really be used in a way to intensify the experience rather than um, take away from it. Now, if you plan sex and it sort of becomes drudgery and more like, a, um, oh yeah, it's, it's Saturday. I guess we should have sex again. Well, that's, that's a different thing. That's maybe you need to start doing some things to, um, to enhance that connection and enhance that excitement more so that um, you're more looking forward to it. Yeah. And I also think one thing, 
Because I think first you have a lot of good points here. So in the beginning of a relationship, the truth is we think it's spontaneous, but actually we do plan because we, we right. make dedicated time to meet up and go on a date. And that's right. planning, right? It's saying we are meeting this day at this time at this place. It's not just all yeah. spontaneous. And often we forget that when we then live and together if, and, and have kids. Oh, and Right. And oh, by the way, when we have that date, we're, we're probably both going to make sure that there's space in there to spontaneously have sex somehow. That's right. Exactly. So so the fact is there is planning and, you know, we think about what's <coughs> going to happen. Like you said, there's that anticipation um, and to try and yeah recreate that as well. So, yeah, I, f- I think there's some really good points. And also, I think it's possible if it feels like an obligation sex, then you know, it's also possible to just say, you know, these times in the week, we set time aside where we we basically are physical. It doesn't have to end up in sex. It could just be somehow physical, right. whatever feels good. And that kind of, I guess, take away the pressure. And it also leaves up this uncertainty whether there will be sex or not. So it doesn't have that boredom of, of being predictable. Right. Um, it, yeah, that's I, I, I'm sorry. I mean to interrupt you there. No, go ahead, Mark. That's it. Well, well um, the other thing that because you 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 bring up another idea that I think is important is that sometimes when when couples um, feel like any time they start to get physically connected or affectionate or whatnot that it's going to lead to sex that actually shuts down affection right if people if there's some tension particularly if there's tension between a couple over what the appropriate f- frequency is. One person has a much higher deg- level of desire than the other person does. And that happens a lot. That's normal. Um, and then it's kind of like, well, whenever I whenever I kiss her, the myth is that it's always the man who wants more sex. And that's true a lot of the times, but I've known a lot of couples where the exact opposite is the true too. Whatever I ki- but whatever, so whenever I kiss her, she pulls away. Well, sometimes she pulls away because she assumes that whenever you kiss her, you're initiating sex. And um, affection in general, touching each other, kissing, just being affectionate really works to help create that emotional connection to help a relationship feel better. And when all of that is the case, um, that helps to enhance the sexual aspect too, which then makes it safe. So finding space in a relationship to be physically connected, physically intimate, even without, if you could talk about it that way, physically intimate without it requiring sex is a really good thing for couples to do as well. That's right. Yeah. I think that that's a really good one. And often, especially people got into a a toxic pattern where they find it difficult around that. So I want to jump to a, a different parts of relationship okay. because, yeah, then we get to the stage where some couples end up having kids and we become parents. And, uh, and, that, obviously, do, don't they? and, and that obviously has an impact on the sex life. And right. I guess it also brings up different conflicts. And one of the things I want to talk about, you know, what do parents do when they suddenly realize that maybe – you know, they, they parent quite differently and that obviously can bring up some conflicts that will then start having a negative impact on the relationship. What what are good ways that they could try and handle these differences? Well, that's, yeah, that is, it's a big deal. I I think of uh, parenting and parenting differences. I've got my sort of big five of conflict and relationships, right? And that's one of them. Um, and... First of all, they have to really just, they have to be willing to talk to each other. 
And I think um, if I had one piece of advice, what I would say is that they ought to relax. So the interesting thing is we have a very, a very um, child-focused culture in some ways, and there's all sorts of information out there about it and how parenting is so important and all of that. And I'm, I'm not... I'm not disagreeing with that, but I think what often happens with that is then people get really invested in figuring out how to do it right and what is the right way. And so whatever resonates for them, they start to feel very, very attached to. This is the right way. This is the way it does. This book, this article, this website, whatever says it. Now, they both may have alternating backup that you know backs up their way of and I can really say to most of the couples that I work with who are having problems around this that they would do better if they flipped a coin and chose one person's way of doing it and agreed on it and it didn't matter which what what when the coin flipped then they are having the conflict about it because the conflict between them about what they do as a couple usually creates more problems between them, which then also impacts the parenting and the effectiveness of the parenting more than whether they're doing it, quote, right or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And also, and I know this probably is not really helpful for people that already have kids, but I also think that if people haven't had kids yet, it's really important to sit and talk about these things before it comes a bit back to when yep. we think talk about spontaneous sex. We kind of think that things will just naturally figure themselves out if we are good oh, yeah. fit, which is not how it works. And just because we get on as two adults doesn't mean at all that we will parent in the same way. People just again presume oh. we'll figure it out. So, you know, it's really good to sit down and have these discussions before there's any kids in play and and where you can really talk about you know, how are you raised and how do you see that as, as how you want to raise your kids and, and kind right. of find at least some common values, right? Because I guess there are some hey. some things that are deal breakers and, and some that are not where, like you said, we can just, it's better to just choose actually, let's just do it your way. And then there's other things that might be deal breakers, like, you know, maybe you don't want you or your partner to ever hit your kids, right? So right. it's important to just talk about these things beforehand. Yeah. It, so, and, and there's two, I, I absolutely agree with you. It, it, it's, it's something that couples really should do. It's part of the, that's one of the conversations that couples really ought to have when they're figuring out whether they want to be life partners with each other. And I think there's, um, you, you mentioned a couple things there, right? You want to talk about what your expectations are, but it's also really good to have that conversation about how were you raised and what were the expectations in your family? Because um, what tends to happen with people is, you know, they have all these ideas about how they're going to parent, but then when they have children, a lot of times, you know, the kind of automatic learning about, well, this is how we did things in my family tends to kick in. And so it's useful to talk about both of those things when you're when you're planning. Now, the the, the relaxed piece I said. I mean, clearly there's there are some there are some parenting things that um, work better than others, and there's evidence out there that um, some things are not particularly effective, like physical physical discipline and hitting. Um, 
has consequences that um, other kinds of discipline don't. Okay, but that's not, it's not usually around big things like that. It's usually more about um, how are we going to implement this? What should the consequences be? Um, and and um, what I really encourage couples to do is to try and come up with some compromise between what they're both looking for and um, but that both of them can be comfortable with, right? It's, it's probably not going to be perfect for them, but that they can be comfortable with. And then if they can lean into that and agree on that, um, they will often grow more into comfort with it over time. And I, I think of, the, the other thing is there's, there's kind of different levels to think about, right? And when I talk about parents and coming up with, with to, to couples and parenting about coming up with agreements without a parent, first level you start with is, do you agree on what your expectations are for your kids? And then um, do you agree, the next level is, do you agree um, how you are going to set up um, structure around that. So what are you going to intervene in and what are you not? And then the next level is um, how are you going to intervene? So what are the consequences going to be? How are you going to put that in? How are you going to act and respond to things? And a lot of parents agree a lot on the first and they have a lot more difference on the second two things. Yeah, thank you for bringing up that point as well. And I think one of, one of the challenges that I guess happens in pretty much every relationship where where people end up having kids is how to divide the time you know how do we find time and focus both for us and an adult couple and us as a kid and very often I guess I read that I think a majority of divorces happen in the first two years after a couple have kids and of course it's because that time and focus is taken away from the couple what is a way to right. to find that balance because again having a stable Adult relationship is also hugely beneficial to the children, right? Because it means we have more to give them, etc. Right? Yeah, actually, I say to people, one of the best gifts you can give to your children is creating uh, a connection and a great relationship with each other, both because it's going to contribute to the emotional tone of your home and because you are modeling for them something that you ultimately hope that they're going to do as well. So, um it is difficult. Let's just be honest about that, what you're asking. And it is particularly difficult um, when kids are younger because they demand more time, more attention, and often contribute to that thing that parents love called sleep deprivation, right? But I think it is um, the most important thing is to keep the attitude of we need to make our relationship, we need to make our connection a priority. Because oftentimes what happens is um, that suddenly our relationship, our connection to each other drops to the bottom of the priority list. Everything else becomes more important. Kids drives to the number one, um, then you've got to do the stuff you got to do to survive. And so, you know what? Yeah, we're good. We're just going to survive. But relationships need nurturing and um, 
continuity to, to, to continue on. And so making that a priority and consciously doing it. And I mean, the, the reality is if you make that a priority and even if you just talk about that every week, you know, how are we doing with this? And it's like, you know, we're, we're not doing very well with this because we don't have time because, um, the kids waking up every 30 minutes overnight and so we're sleeping and we're too tired to have sex or cook dinner together or anything right but the fact that you've had the conversation even and said this is valuable paying attention to it makes a difference and it will lead you to um putting stuff back in there that allows you to be connected and focus on your connection to each other um, when that becomes available. And so, you know, people make a big deal about a date night. It is good to have a date night where couples can focus on each other um, on a frequent basis and, and get away from all of the kind of logistical stuff they do. And I'll oftentimes tell tell them that yeah and on your date you need to not talk about work and not talk about your kids and some couples go well what are we going to talk about <laughs> and that's like there you go find some other interesting stuff in the world to talk about because um that stuff is important but you're going to talk about those things anyway so um and i hate to bring it up again but um in the last four months when so many people have been under quarantine and haven't really had this option, this has been a really big challenge for a lot of couples. Um, those that even have done a good job of kind of making space by getting out of the house and um, having a date night and so on are finding that very difficult under the COVID-19 quarantine and all of that. And it, it's it's been a challenge for for couples. I mean, some of them are kind of relegated to you know let's just kind of close the door and make sure we have a conversation every evening that's just focused on us um and and i think mark i think so many good points you're bringing up there and i think the fact is you're right part of it is accepting that we simply don't have as much time anymore but i also think what i often say to people is it's about focusing on quality over quantity because of course there's less but the fact is you know, it doesn't take that long to build the connection every day, even, but it does take awareness of what you do because often people come home and when we're tired, we want to just regulate our nervous system by watching TV or going on right. the phone to numb out. The problem is that, you know, that that's not connecting. But even if it just is taking two or three or five minutes, that's it, five minutes mm-hmm. every day to sit down, look each other in the eyes, make sure you're not interrupted. And just you can either have where you touch each other, where you share something, whatever it might mm-hmm. be you want to do. But just that little time of dedicated attention is often enough. And it doesn't have to be, you know, hours and hours. But often, I guess we just forget because we are not aware of the impact of not doing this. And it right. starts taking its toll, you know, when suddenly a year down the line, both people say, oh, I don't really feel connected to you anymore. And they don't realize what happened. And it's because these small moments where we did have time, we didn't give each other that quality of attention. And I just find that is super important. You're, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, it doesn't take much, but it's the quality of attention and it's the focus of attention on each other. Sometimes um, one of the suggestions I will make to couples is 
just share two things that happened to you during the course of the day. And if you don't have both of these happen to you, at least share the one. Share something that had a positive emotional impact on you and share something that had a negative emotional impact on you. Because what you're really doing is you're sharing here's what my emotional experience has been like. And that's a piece of what the emotional connection is, right? It's, it's what, what you often hear is, I don't feel connected to you. I don't feel like I know you anymore. I don't know what your life is about. Well, that's because you don't really know what your partner's experiencing from day to day and from moment to moment. And, um, and, and, and even when, when, um, Couples may have time. One of the resistant pieces I read, well, they don't want to talk about my work because my work's boring and they don't understand it. And you're right. And, and my response to that is absolutely. They don't want to hear about the details of your work. However, they do want to hear the details about how your work is impacting you. Right, so you don't need to give them the details of the contract that you've been working on all day, but you can say, "Wow, I worked on this contract all day that was just overwhelming, and it felt um, like I was going to be buried by it." Right, that's an emotional sharing. Um, or I was thrilled when it was done. You know, um, that's the piece that's really important. It comes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning. You know, it's the emotional connection. Yeah, that's, I like that. I like that's that. what can make it happen. Yeah, so share the emotional impact that things had on us rather than the logistical details of, of everything right. I have. That's a really good practical tip for people to implement. I like that. And I also think I want to talk to you a little bit about conflicts in relationship too because, of course, it's inevitable. And I think a lot of people have this idea that it's about you know, getting rid of conflict, you know, we want to get rid of the conflict. But yeah, yeah. How do you look at that, you know, for conflicts in relationships? Is it a bad thing or not? Because again, it's a natural thing that there will be conflicts, right? At some point. Yeah. If it's a bad thing, we're all in trouble because it's inevitable, right? I mean, you're going to have differences, you're going to have. Um, and so what I like to work with people on is the, the the most important thing about conflict is to find ways to have that conflict, find ways to disagree with each other, find ways to fight that doesn't damage your connection to each other or that has or and or because often to, all, you can't always do that to have mechanisms for reconnecting once that's been damaged. Right. And so, um, a piece of that is is um, the, the the place where I think most people feel the most vulnerable and and um, c- conflict is most likely to go off the rails is when they don't feel cared about by their or don't feel respected or um, then that translates into being feel, feeling attacked sometimes, right? So it's important to do, to, you, you're going to have disagreements, right? You're going to probably fight. You're going to hurt each other's feelings sometimes, but to keep at the base of it a sense that we are emotionally connected. Um, if you both feel, okay, I care about you and I know you care about me, and I have your best interest at heart and my best interest at heart, and I know you have my best interest at heart and your best interest at heart, if you really believe those things going into a conflict, 
you can probably fight about just about anything. Yeah, I think that's such an important point you just bring up now, because I think if there's a fundamental trust, like you said, that the other mm -hmm. want the best for you, and that actually they are responsive to your needs, if that's an underlying pattern in a relationship, then a conflict is not necessarily going to have a big impact. And again, if you have repair tools, it can normally right. easily be repaired. But if there's this underlying feeling that you can't trust your partner, or actually they don't want the best for you, and they're not responsive to you if you need them, then it can become really destructive really quickly, right? And and right. I think this is also why it is so important that day to day we try and be emotional responsive to a partner. It doesn't mean we can give them everything, but we can right. still be responsive, right? We can acknowledge their experience, etc. So they know we care. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I wanted to ask you as well. So, you know, we get into these conflicts that's inevitable. What are ways that people can kind of navigate this so they have, uh, I guess we can call it healthy conflict or constructive conflict instead of something that become destructive for them? Right. So actually, as you were talking, I mean, I, I, there was another piece that I thought of about it and that is that, 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 um, that baseline of connection needs to be strong enough that it can tolerate being upset with each other. Because in my experience, one of the things that drives couples conflict and escalates it is um, what, what I might characterize as desperate repair attempts, right? It, it, one of the best things people can do to make sure that their conflict re remains healthy is to have enough security and stability and belief and trust in each other that they can tolerate their partner being upset with them. Because what tends to happen is if I, if, if you and I are in a fight and I can't, or we have a disagreement and I can't tolerate you being upset with me, I tend to escalate to try to get you to not be upset with me. And that usually comes with me telling you why you're wrong about being upset in the first place, which always makes things worse. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, so that's, um, that's at an emotional level, that's real basic. Now, um, if you, you, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with John Gottman. So if you want some concrete things to do, um, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are, are, um, a really good way to do. Those are four things that are always damaging in conversation and conflict, which is criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, or just sort of shutting down, and contempt, which is really, I mean, when you start to get sarcastic and um, cutting someone and name-calling and so on, that's really damaging. So staying in control of um, keeping those things out of your conflict is helpful. The other, um, something that's helpful with that, which it's, it's, um, it's an interesting thing I've come up with for couples, um, is, it, is that you should not be having conversations when your emotional arousal level is too high. When your sympathetic nervous system get kicks, gets kicked into gear, um, you're really not capable of, um, of having those kinds of fights. Um, actually... You know, when your sympathetic nervous system is it's called the flight or flight system for a good reason, right? Because when it kicks in, it's basically preparing your body to 
face a physical challenge. Um, so it pumps, you know, pumps energy to the muscles and lungs and stuff like that. But it also shuts down um, blood flow to the parts of the body that are not um, seen as important to, to physical things, such as digestion. But the other piece that's not considered, apparently, is not considered important to, to physical response by our bodies is the frontal lobes of the brain. When our sympathetic nervous system gets aroused, actually we get less blood flowing to the part of our brain that makes us think. So we get stupid, basically. And so it is useful when you get really charged up to take a break. And um, I've created what I call, it's a rule that I think every couple should have, and there's two parts of it. And the first part of it is... Anybody should be able to end a conversation whenever they want to. And usually when I'm working with a couple and I say that, one partner goes, yes, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> and the second part is, if you end the conversation, it's your responsibility to bring it back up again. And the other partner goes, yes, that's absolutely correct. But the idea of that being that um, if I know that I'm too upset to have a um, conversation where I'm going to feel in control of my words, I should say, I need a break. But if I say I need a break, um, that means that I should be the one that carries the responsibility for carrying on whatever the conversation was. Because so often what happens is we have in couples, there's one person who is um, more responsible for making the conversations happen and another person who is the one who um, tends to get more aroused easily. And so there's this start, arouse, shut down, start, arouse, shut down, or then both of them explode. So it's it's helpful. And, and the reality is it's much easier to tolerate partners saying, I can't talk about this, if you know they're going to... Um, um, bring it up again. And it's also much more easy to tolerate your partner bringing something up with you if you know that they're going to be respectful of your own emotional arousal. Yeah, that, I really like those part, Mark. And I just want to also say, because for me, what has been really helpful is as you talk about the adrenaline response and our nervous system and fight and flight is to teach ourselves some strategies that can yep. help us self-soothe. So I know what I do if I'm in a discussion and I can feel my nervous system, I can feel I'm starting to get to a place where I know I'm going to snap. Then I have different strategies. It could be even taking a pillow from the sofa and I squeeze it together to kind of release some of that energy and slowly relax this again. And it works. I know it sounds funny, but it works because it discharged some of that adrenaline, right? The, the Some of my right. fight response. And it means then my nervous system soothes and calms down a bit. Um, so it's also important, I think, to have some tools ourselves of how we can regulate our nervous system when we feel Absolutely. we start getting into that danger window. And, and a lot of the stuff is like that, that we say, well, it feels silly. I mean, it does really work because there are, there are, um, th there's a pretty powerful connection between our physical body and our nervous system, right? And so are the, there are things that we can do physically that help bring the nervous system back down under control that kind of releases that what you're talking about releases some of the adrenaline or whatnot that's come up um there's an automatic um 
relaxation response that happens with breathing out when you attach visualization to that that helps it so breath is another really powerful thing so um yes there's 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 all sorts of things you can learn to do that and and it's also important to realize that people's nervous systems are different some people naturally soothe pretty quickly some people take a lot longer with that and so it's important for to understand both and your partners or at least be respectful of your partners yeah particular pattern thank you i think that's important you're right we're different and we need to respect that people have different responses and need different time but i think there's been a lot of valuable content today mark and i really enjoyed having this conversation with you i think if listeners are sitting out there and want to work with you and know more could you just tell them how they can find you online uh yeah my my practice is um the IQ Relationship Institute. Um, that's A I K I. I've got my website is IQ Relationships with a dash. So it's A I K I dash relationships.com. Perfect. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, you've been a star. And I think some really good tips have been given out today. So thank you from me and also the listeners. Well, thank you. This has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and come back for our new weekly podcast. Also, leave a review to keep the positive energy going that really keeps me motivated to make more of these podcasts. If you want to learn the key skills to a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, then head over to sensor.com and join the free one-hour webinar. The link is in the description. You'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down, the how your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner and how to break that cycle, why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it, the simple three-step formula to lasting love. So thank you for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you next week for another podcast. Mm-hmm.